Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valsler, and with Dave Ansell. The Messenger spacecraft completed one year of orbiting Mercury this month. Now, by that I mean one Earth year, not one Mercury year. And two papers published in the journal Science highlight some of the surprising scientific results from our solar system's innermost planet. Messenger launched back in 2004, and after a few successful flybys, it went into orbit around Mercury in March 2011. As well as taking lots of images, it's been measuring the magnetic field, taking spectral analysis of the surface and of its fairly tenuous atmosphere, and it's been mapping the terrain, and it's made some unexpected discoveries about the planet's surface and about its core. So using results from laser altimetry that was measuring topography, it becomes obvious that Mercury's northern hemisphere has a lower dynamic range of elevations, or it's simply less mountainous than Mars or the Moon. Now that's not to say that Mercury has had an inactive life. There's plenty of evidence of meteorite bombardment and of volcanism and also that large scale changes have occurred since that last heavy bombardment, since the volcanic activity died down. Some impact craters have even been tilted on their side and distorted and the middle of them are now higher than the edge of the crater. Now that suggests that either volcanic or some sort of tectonic activity must have been a very as yet poorly understood aspect of Mercury's evolution. So that's clearly a target for scientists to look at. Some of these unusual surface features though could be accounted for by Mercury's very strange core. It takes up 85% of the planet's radius. Now, that's much larger than we would predict from our understanding of Earth, where the core only accounts for about 50% of the radius. It contains a truly vast amount of iron, and that generates a fairly distinctive magnetic field. But it also has a very unusual structure. Earth has a solid inner core surrounded by a liquid outer, but it seems that Mercury has an extra layer of complication. There's a solid iron sulphide outer core that surrounds a liquid metal layer, and that in turn surrounds a solid inner core. That's partly why we get very strange magnetic signals from Mercury. This core structure is unique among all of the planets that we've been able to observe so far, but it does fit well with observations of the magnetic field, and it helps to explain some strange chemistry going on on the surface. We know, for example, that the crust contains far more sulphur than could otherwise be predicted. So Mercury may yet have yet more surprises for us. Other reports also out this month have been hinting at the existence of frozen liquid water at the poles, for example. And due to its success, the Messenger programme has been extended to probe even further so we'll get yet more science in a few months time mercury is a very strange planet it's very small and dense and just bizarre it is it's uh, it has the most uneven uh, orbit of all of the planets for example it it does things like rotates three i think it's three times a year it, it doesn't really fit with our current model of how planets evolve and how planets form in the first place and that's why things like messenger are really really important and that's why it's good that we understand what's going on in the core and the constituents why there's all this sulfur on the surface why there's all that iron inside and of course the more we learn about the other planets the more we understand our own planet itself now on a completely different subject um, a way of determining drug use from the sewers has been developed 
Drug use in the population, both legal and illegal, is important to know about for health, social and even law and order reasons. And whilst it's relatively easy to keep tab on the amount of legal drug use by just going to a pharmacy and asking how much they've sold, the purveyors of illegal drugs are unsurprisingly rather reticent with this sort of information. Um, and it's possible to study drug users with questionnaires, but they're also quite reticent, not necessarily accurate. And I can imagine why people would lie about their drug use. But this isn't a, isn't particularly new, is it? I, I was I found a report that said the River Po in Italy was uh, was analysed a little while ago, and it found evidence of consumption of. Let me just check the figures: uh, consumption of up to one thousand five hundred kilograms of cocaine per year. So they're finding <laughs> evidence, presumably metabolites of cocaine. What's the new angle here? Well, that's fine for drugs which are only used for legal reasons or can only be produced by legal means. There are quite a few drugs which are either used in legal um, uses and illegal ones or can be created by metabolising a legal drug into the illegal drug and it gets excreted and ends up in the sewers as well. I think there are some what we would call drugs that come from prescription drugs and that of course is not to say that people have been abusing drugs i'm thinking of amphetamines which can often be breakdown products of prescription drugs that's exactly the problem now barbara kasprick holden and david baker at the university of huddersfield have been studying this and they've used the fact although both versions are often the same molecule parts of these molecules can be mirror images of one another and the legal and the illegal versions have different ratios of these different mirror images. And they've studied wastewater from a variety of treatment works using liquid chromatography uh, machines to separate the different molecules and these enantiomers, the different mirror image versions, and mass spectrometry to give a better idea what the molecule is. They've found various different drugs in the wastewater, including amphetamine, methamphetamine, MDMA, which is ecstasy, ephedrine. But studying the percentages of the different enantiomers, the different mirror image versions, they can work out how much of each one of these was illegal and how much of it was legal. The technique is quite new. They need to do an awful lot of calibration because they don't really know how the different mirror image versions behave when they're in a sewer. You might find that some bacteria which eats one of them and doesn't eat the other one. So they need to calibrate the whole system at different temperatures and in different kinds of sewer. But it could turn into a very important tool in understanding just what is being used out in the population. This is chirality, isn't it? Whether or not something's left-handed or right-handed, a molecule can be one or the other. We know from other drugs that actually which handedness they are can have a serious impact on how they work. It certainly has an impact on the effect of the brain. And part of the reason why one version is legal and one version is illegal is that one has more um, psychoactive effects than the other one and one of them might have more medical effects than the other one. So there tends to be this fingerprint between the different things um, ending up in different places. And the other thing which this is important to know about is the um, environmental um, consequences because some of these drugs could have an effect on fish or the environment generally. So even the legal ones. So understanding this is also very important. So that's one to keep an eye out, which handedness of drugs end up in the water system. Also this week, researchers at the Scripps Translational Science Institute in California have developed a blood test that may be capable of predicting an imminent heart attack. Publishing in Science Translational Medicine, Eric Topol and colleagues built on early work that shows that populations of unusual endothelial cells in blood samples taken from heart attack patients. These cells seem to come from the linings of arteries. So to find out why this was so interesting, Chris Smith spoke to Dr. Topol. Well, we had a very big unmet need, and that is today we can't diagnose heart attacks that are incubating. 
it's very easy to diagnose a heart attack where there's already been damage to the heart muscle. So there's enzymes in the blood and there's a cardiogram that shows that. But the limiting factor is that we can't tell when the artery has cracked before the blood clot forms. It's a blood clot that causes the stoppage of blood flow to the heart muscle. So we want to know when that crack is occurring, which is a precursor to a heart attack. So how did you approach that problem? We, we know that when someone has a heart attack, we have a narrowed area of a blood vessel which has an atheromatous deposit in it, and for some reason this atheromatous deposit ruptures or cracks open, and this forms a blood clot which then blocks the vessel. So right. with that in mind, how did you approach saying, well, well is there a way to try and preempt when this might be about to happen and who's at risk? Yes, yeah, so back in, in 1999, there was the first paper ever that showed that these cells that were presumably coming from the artery lining could be found in the bloodstream before a heart attack. And so that was a very provocative paper that kind of sat dormant for you know, well over 12 years. Uh, because we didn't really have, until more recently, the ability to unequivocally identify these cells, that they are truly uh, coming from their artery, and also to, to zoom in on them and, and to do such things as sequencing and, and uh, elaborate studies to understand what these cells are all about. So what did you actually do? You have a group of patients who have a heart attack, you have another group of patients who are equivalent to the first group but haven't had a heart attack, and you compare the cells in the blood of both. Right. So normally there's very few of these cells, if any, in a healthy person. And the cells are very, very elliptical. They're very one nucleus. They're very uh, consistent. Whereas in the heart attack uh, individuals from the early minutes uh, of their blood had nothing to do with the heart attack per se. It was these are cells that clearly had to have been present for, you know, some days prior to that. Uh, but what was so unique about these cells is they were giant they were uh, very distorted and in clusters. And this is the first time that that's been demonstrated. So let's piece this back together then. You get these blood samples from people who have had a heart attack and it looks like these cells were probably in circulation prior to the time they had the heart attack. They could therefore be a warning sign that something's about to happen. How do you think they got from the diseased artery into the test tube that you tested? Well, it's pretty straightforward. You know, that there's a crack that's emerging in this inflamed segment of an artery from the surface of the heart. And that as the crack is growing before the blood clot forms, these cells are just getting shed from that a spot right into the blood. And of course, once they're in the blood, you know, just getting a, a, a blood tube sample is a window into that process. It's reassuring that she found only a small number of these cells in healthy people. But of course, I'd I wonder whether you included in that control group people who might have other risk factors but aren't having a heart attack because is there going to be a grey area where you'll have people who have artery disease but they're not at imminent risk of a heart attack but your test looking for these cells might say they are? Well, we haven't seen any grey area yet. You know, we've extended this in, you know, many different patients and we even took the healthy people and we kept come, having them come back, which had never been done before, to, to see how stable the finding is of their absence or relative absence of these cells. So we, we tried to drill down on that quite a bit, Chris. The big question must be, well, how far in advance can we presage a forthcoming event and therefore intervene meaningfully in right. these people? 
Well, you know, this uh, was a segue to a much more simple, quick, and hopefully quite inexpensive test. The work that we did was too laborious, you know, trying to isolate all these cells. But now that we've done genomics of these cells and have a much easier signal to work with, we will take that to the emergency room setting to validate a practical test. Wouldn't it be more meaningful to take a large group of individuals who are at risk and then just hoik them back into the clinic on a weekly basis and get blood from them and then marry up those blood samples with the ones who do then over time go on to have a heart attack? Yeah, that, that wouldn't work too well because you'd have to do that in thousands of people every week to get the few relatively number that are going to have a heart attack. It's not so easy to find people who are about to have a heart attack that route. But if you go to the emergency room setting where people, for example, in the U.S., there's 3 million people coming in with chest pain or tightness or pressure thinking they might have a heart attack each year. And out of those, so many have no damage to their heart muscle, but in fact are the exact kind of people that we're trying to identify because they are having this precursor event. So that's a much better way than just taking people who are perfectly stable with no symptoms having to come back to a clinic every week. But you're bringing up another point. This is a one-off test. In order to have the blood under surveillance all the time in high-risk individuals like you were outlining, that will require a sensor embedded in the blood, which we're working on as well, that would communicate to one's smartphone to give a ringtone that a heart attack is incubating. I'm also getting at the point that we're coming up with all these coronary risk profiles and we're saying to people, you have a 10% risk or you have a 15% risk and we're using this to inform what drugs we put people on. If we've got an even more acute measure, these are the individuals who are not just at risk but these are really elaborating a heart attack, it's in evolution, then they could actually be stratified for even more intense treatment and a heart attack could be prevented in those individuals. You're, you've nailed it. The point is, is that once you know the heart attack underlying process is ongoing, it's a heart attack waiting to happen, then the main thing is to prevent the blood clot. If we prevent the blood clot, then the chance of preventing the event is uh, exceptionally high. And that's really becomes the new goal. Eric Topol from the Scripps Translational Science Institute at La Jolla, California. Using a laser, a super-fast camera and a clever algorithm, researchers at MIT have developed the ability to see in three dimensions around a corner. Writing in the journal Nature Communications, Andreas Velton and colleagues relied on the fact that scattered light will bounce off different surfaces and the time taken to bounce back to their camera can tell you the distances involved. Velton set up a test chamber by placing an object behind an opaque wall that they called the occluder and placing another wall, known as the diffuser, at right angles to and a small distance away from that occluding wall. They then fired extremely short bursts of laser light at the diffusing wall so that the light would reflect off that wall and scatter around inside the chamber and round the corner. Some of that scattered light would fall upon the object they wanted to see and then it would bounce off again. And some of this doubly reflected light would then, in another bounce, bounce off the diffusing wall for a second time and back towards the camera. Now, imaging that light with a normal camera would tell you very, very little, but the team used a special kind of camera called a streak camera. 
in a conventional camera, the position of a photon on the sensor represents, to an extent, its position in the real world, because you want to build up a realistic image of where those photons were coming from. In a streak camera, though, photons are directed in such a way that the position of the light on the sensor actually represents the time at which the sensor entered the camera. And that allows you to record the arrival time of light to a resolution of two picoseconds. That's incredible. Light's going at three times 10 to the 8, so 300 million metres per second, and you can still measure it to within 0.6 millimetres. That is remarkable. And this temporal resolution is what allows you to work out the distance that the light has travelled, from which you can then work out the relative distance between the diffusing wall and the hidden object. If you then move the laser and repeat the process over and over again, you get a range of timing data that can then be put through this clever algorithm they've developed in order to build up a 3D map of the area behind the occluding wall. So you're essentially using light, like a really sophisticated radar, but on the surface of a table? Essentially, yes. And obviously using light as radar is not new. LIDAR, in fact, LIDAR altimetry is how they measured the height of the surface on Mercury in my earlier news story. So that aspect of it isn't new, but it, what's really special is the resolution and the, uh, combining different technologies in order to use that LIDAR effect and work out actually what's somewhere hidden. And being able to see around corners has uh, obvious military applications, um, but it's also going to be incredibly useful in very dangerous environments, such as inside machinery or in a contaminated or a disaster area. Um, but it's not just man-made structures, of course, that have corners that you need to look around. Another really useful application, once we have the technology to miniaturise this sufficiently, would be in endoscopy, looking inside the lungs or inside the heart. Now, with a roundup of other science stories hitting the headlines this week, here's Mira Senthalingam. A new drug target to prevent male pattern baldness has been identified by scientists at the University of Pennsylvania. By profiling the genes and resulting proteins in scalp tissue from males suffering from the condition, George Cozzarellis found that in samples of balding tissue, there were increased levels of prostaglandin D2. It's thought the protein inhibits hair growth in hair follicles by acting on a receptor known as GPR44. Targeting this receptor therapeutically could treat or prevent male pattern baldness in the future. If you look at the current treatments for male pattern baldness, they're all based on serendipitous findings. But what we've done is we've directly studied the disorder and looked for abnormalities in the actual scalp. And we showed that this protein inhibits hair growth in both uh, human hair follicles as well as mouse hair follicles. We then identified the receptor that this protein works through, and there are compounds that target this receptor already. So we think that using these compounds would lead to a new treatment for male pattern baldness. Satellite images have been used to identify over 9,000 sites of early human settlement in northeastern Syria. Researchers from Harvard University used computer algorithms to search the images for clues of human habitation, such as soil discoloration as a result of long-term human activity and elevated mounds of land created by populations building on top of previous remains. Jason Err led the discovery. This is significant because these places were not known before. We can now take this data set and we can ask really basic questions about uh, the origins of settlement, the relationship of villages and cities to their environment. 
We can also take what we found and we can use this to protect these places in the face of, of new development threats, which grow every year. What's particularly exciting about the method that we've developed is if I were to do this on the ground, it would take me a very long time. With this method, I can map out the possible places of settlement very quickly. Ibuprofen can reduce your chances of suffering from altitude sickness, which can cause symptoms such as headaches and nausea and can be fatal. Taking 86 volunteers up White Mountain in California to altitudes of 12,500 feet and dosing them with either ibuprofen or placebo, Grant Lippmann from the Stanford University School of Medicine found that people taking the drug were three times less likely to show symptoms. Up till now, the prevalent medications are prescription drugs like acetazolamide or dexamethasone, limited by prescription-only availability, and each with side effects. So we're really excited about the generalizability of these findings that can affect the tourists and the weekend warriors and people who want to enjoy the mountains and don't want to be feeling awful for the first day or two days of their vacation. And finally... Black bears can heal their wounds during hibernation to emerge injury-free in the spring. By making small incisions in the skin of 14 black bears before hibernation and monitoring the state of these wounds as the bears hibernate through the winter, David Garcellis from the University of Minnesota found that despite having a lower metabolism during this time, the bears replaced layers of skin at injured sites and grew new hair with minimal scarring and no signs of infection. Even though their skin temperature and their core temperature is greatly reduced and their blood circulation is greatly reduced, they are able to heal these wounds and have very little scarring on the wounds and they even get follicle growth. All this is very different from other hibernators and obviously very different from humans and we're hoping that if we can find out the mechanism that is used in bears to heal these wounds, maybe we can somehow apply it to help humans heal wounds, particularly when people don't have good circulation. And the work was published this week in the Journal of Integrative Zoology. That was Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. Transcripts and the references for all our news this week can be found on our website at nakedscientist.com news. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.